0: I want to, on the heels of an incredible week we had together and last service as well, I wanna to speak to something that uh, that I think will help us as we are moving out of Revival Nights into this, going into the fall season and going, in, well, going into our holiday season, really, and where we are, we've been in a series about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to veer a little bit today and uh, we're beginning a new series next week. I'm actually taking some time away and uh, shaping a lot of that series, and I'm really excited about it. But I want to preach to you today on the heels of, of Revival Night, something I feel we'll, we'll, that God wants us to know today. I want to preach to you on a hill worth dying on. A hill worth dying on. Everybody say that with me. A hill worth dying on. In 1944, the world was in the bloodiest battle in human history. This battle, as you know, was called World War II. This war caused pain, anguish, and uncertainty across the planet. It's hard to say with full certainty the amount of people that perished as a result of the war, directly or indirectly, through warfare or through sickness and disease and poverty. The number is between 50 to 80 million people. After a long battle, the Allied forces came together to battle the Axis powers in what became known as the largest invasion in human history, D-Day. General Dwight David Eisenhower, who would later become president, told the troops before they were to invade the beaches of Normandy, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have planned for many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. Little did they know that at that time they were breaking into German-held territory, thus leading them to victory. But that day they were not sure. On June 6, 1944, some 160,000 American, British, and Canadian forces landed on five beaches along a 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified coast of France's Normandy region. There were young men from the 2nd Ranger Battalion who had scaled 100-foot cliffs, who had scaled 100-foot cliffs during the Allied invasion on a mission to take out the German artillery installation at the top. They used ropes and daggers and climbing equipment to do all they could to reach the enemy. As bullets whizzed past them, as bombs were dropped near them. That day, 225 young men fought and climbed the sides of those cliffs, and at the end, only 90 of them could still bear arms. 40 years later, in 1984, the then President of of the United States, Ronald Reagan, spoke at the monument in honor of these men. The day that he spoke on the exact beach that they climbed the hills on, At the top of the hill, he stood on an old German bunker with the monument behind him, and in front of him to his left was the Queen of England, who was a part of the invasion of of England being a part of it, the Prime Minister of Canada, but his focus was only on the 62 men who were on his right, who remained from that dreadful day. Reagan called them the boys who climbed the 100-foot cliffs. These are the boys of Gwendahoe. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. These are the men who helped end a war. He is quoted saying, we all know that there are some things worth dying for, and all of you love liberty, and we're willing to fight tyranny, and you knew the people of your country were behind you. Toward the end of his speech he said, let us take a vow to our dead, let us show them by our actions that we understand what they died for. That we are strengthened by their courage and hearted by their values. And at the end of his speech, President Ronald Reagan said in 1994, on that windy day in Germany, in France rather, he said, let us continue to stand for the ideas for which they lived and died. In warfare, one of the most valuable things are hills. They give you an advantage over the opposing army, and an army will do almost anything to get and to keep them. If you were to study battles, you will find that there are pivotal moments in history in battles that happen on hills, like Hamburger Hill, Bunker Hill, San Juan Hill, and Little Round Top Hill, and also Guendahoe. In battle, trying to take a hill is a very bloody business. It causes heavy casual, casualties. It has to be worth fighting for. They will plan for years and months and hours to get it just right because they need the advantage over their enemy. To fight for a hill was a very cautious thing. Thus, the statement we've heard many times, the hill you choose To die on, or a hill worth dying on. As we sit in this room today, it's easy to forget the conveniences afforded to us by the people who have gone on before us: the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom to gather. Freedom, you've heard it said, is free, but it isn't. It isn't. It isn't free. It isn't cheap. It costs so much. In America, we are blessed to have these freedoms to worship, to gather, to come together, to choose. We have these great freedoms today because of the untold millions who have gone on before us and given their lives and days gone by. And if you have served or are currently serving in the military today, we honor you and thank God for you. this is just not a way in our country. I believe it's also a correlation to our faith. And days gone by, there has been someone or a people group who have carried the burden, who have scaled the cliffs, who have felt the pressures, who have cried the tears. They took the hill. To them, the hill was worth fighting for. I make an appeal to you today that there are some things still worth fighting for. There are some things that I believe have been great values of the past that have been disregarded by some, but there are some in the current age that are still holding to certain values, and as true followers of Christ, we have some hills that are still worth dying on. Jude 3 says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The writer here is letting us know that there are still some things worth fighting for. The writer is letting us know that what has been passed down is is so of precious value that it must be contended for, it must be fought for, there must be some blood, sweat, and tears to preserve and to expand for the days ahead. Someone has given their life for this, and someone has given their life for this. And when we gather today, I think there are a couple of hills that are worth still fighting on. I think there's a couple of a couple of things that as people of God that we are willing and we are convinced and we should have absolute resolve that there are some things we don't bend on no matter what culture says, no matter what people do as for me and our We will make the values that God's word teaches and we will set them in order and we will say, no, no, there's some hills still worth dying on. Can I get a big amen, somebody? And I want to give you three today. I think there are three hills and I believe there are many and there could be many added. But in our short time today, I want to take you down The list of three hills worth dying on. Number one, his word. Somebody say his word. In a time where there is so much deception and confusion, there is a desperate need for truth. The antidote to deception is simply that truth. And as we are watching people, on the outside, influencing the church on the inside, the casualties seem to get higher and higher. People believing faulty ideas that are unbiblical about education, genders, marriage, family, building communities, societies, on the shaky, sandy foundation of human ideology human philosophy, humanism, when we are not called to live like the world, we are called to live by his word. When we come to Christ, we are of them, we are in the world, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. Our worldview is shaped by something much different than social media. Come on, talk back to me a little bit. Our, our, Our worldview is not shaped by what mama said. Our perspective on life is not shaped by what the media says. It is shaped by what God's word says. As we continue to insist on building lives and communities and nations apart from the word of God, we're only creating more chaos, more confusion, more corruption. But I've come to tell you today that if we were to instill back the things of the Word of God in our families, in our nation, and in our societies, Jesus said, you will build your house upon the rock, and when the rains come and the the floods rise, you'll still be stable and able to stand strong because His Word will not return unto us void. His Word is not like this world. It is established in heaven forever. The grass may fade but his word will stand forever. His word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Second Timothy chapter four, Paul is talking to Timothy, his young protege in the ministry. Paul is writing his final letter before his execution And he's making his final appeal, his most important words to be said at the end of his time, and he says, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Are we living there? They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Paul in his final days on earth about to be executed is telling his spiritual son to handle the word of God with precision, to preach it with passion, to study it, with, with focus and to get your life wrapped around the word. And when you get in the pulpit, don't be afraid of what they think. Preach in season if they like it, out of season if they don't like it. You just get that word out. Somebody say, Paul. Paul, this beast of a man called on the road to Damascus spoke many different languages, a great thinker, sat under the greatest teachers and universities of his time, wrote two thirds of the New Testament, was a man of the scriptures, and in his final moments is making his plead with Timothy, please get the word to the people, to Paul, God's word was a hill worth dying on. William Tyndale could speak seven different languages and was proficient in Hebrew and Greek. He was a priest whose intellectual gifts and disciplined life could have taken him a long way in the church. He had not won, if he did not have this one compulsion, to teach the English men and women the good news about Jesus. And the only way he could do that was to translate Bibles from different languages into English for the common man to read. It was said of him that he only sang one note. It was an insult, meaning that he only had one passion, one focus, all he talked about was Jesus and translating Bibles. But he was so focused to get the Word of God in the hands of people that he ended up being arrested. Tyndale finished the English translation of the Greek New Testament in Germany and began to smuggle it in England in bales of clothes. In October 1536, at only at the age of 50, or excuse me, 42, Tyndale's one note that he sang his whole life was silenced as he was tied to the stake, strangled with a rope, and, and burned to, to, to Ashes, to Tyndale. God's word was a hill worth dying on. By any means necessary, hear me, if you don't go to this church, find a church that preaches the word. Yeah. By any means necessary, get a translation you can understand and get the word in you. By any means necessary, if you gotta use an app, if you gotta listen when you sleep, by, what, by, by extreme measures, because some people have given their life to make sure that you have that Bible, to have his word, to hear a sermon, because some hills are still worth dying on. Another hill I find in scripture that and in history worth fighting for and dying on is this, his spirit. I know we've talked a lot about this in the last month with the Ghosts in the House series, but I just want to go a little further and, and I won't stay here long, but according to the word of God, as you know, the spirit gives us power, strength and wisdom and revelation, leads us, teaches us, reminds us and convicts us. Second Corinthians three says now the, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now we could easily build a church that didn't emphasize the spirit of God. We, we can gather some people, come up with some programs, get somebody with the gift of gab. <laughs> I got the gift of gab. Get some music, get a kid's ministry And you can be a church. But I'm not sure you are a church just because you have people. Because in the book of Acts, the church was not defined until the Holy Spirit came. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit was present did the the church dispensation begin. So I'm not interested in going to a church without the Holy Spirit. Because it's probably just a gathering of people hearing a great teaching. We need the Holy Spirit in the church today. I don't believe that Jesus intended for his church to be cold and lifeless. I believe that when his spirit is present, the church is active and alive. And when you come to Vibrant, I don't know if you ever noticed, but sometimes we clap. And sometimes we cheer, and sometimes we cry, and sometimes you'll see us jumping, Sometimes we'll open the altars and people will come and pray. There are times we will have prayer partners lined across the front, and people will come and ask God to help with certain things, and we pray with them because we're a church that believes when the Holy Spirit is present, we just believe in miracles. We believe in signs and wonders, and hearts being changed and transformed, and lives being touched, and teenagers getting off drugs, and and, and lives and marriages being fixed. I, I just believe that the Spirit of God is a hill worth dying on. It's okay to be an expressive church. Can I get an amen? Now, somebody could say, well, when I read my Bible, I, I don't see Jesus doing any of that. I don't see Jesus jumping and leaping and crying. So all this emotionalism, I just don't believe it's of God. Well, let me just help you. We don't see Jesus doing it, but everybody Jesus touched did it. Everybody he healed and cast a demon out of and restored and touched and taught, they rejoiced and cheered and leaped because when Jesus touches our life, when the Spirit touches our life, things happen, and you just can't help but be happy because I think this is a hill worth dying on. Can I get an Amen. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God fell in Acts chapter 2, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. And onlookers and uh, naysayers and critics were laughing and joking. And then it was Peter who stood up. It was Peter who stood up among the disciples and among the 120 with the people laughing. And he, may, and he defended the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It was Peter whose shadow, when it touched sick people, were healed. It was Peter whose mother-in-law was healed. It was Peter who has a ministry marked by the supernatural working of God. It was Peter in Acts chapter three who saw a miracle of a man lame. It was Peter who saw the work of the Spirit and defended it. To him, it was a hill worth dying on. And because of his faith, history records and indicate that Peter This radical man who was picked by Jesus himself was crucified. History shares that Peter, the same Peter that had his up and downs, had a forward mouth, saw the empty tomb, saw him crucified, was in the upper room. This is a man who has seen and witnessed the glorious things of God on the earth. History lets us know that Peter was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. And as he watched her being led to the death, Clement, the writer, the historian says that Peter yelled out to her, remember the Lord. Remember what we've seen him do. Remember the day where he fed the 5,000. Don't forget the day where he healed your mother. Don't you dare forget them. Remember the Lord. When blind Bartimaeus yelled out and he healed him. Remember the Lord who, who, When he was walking through a crowd, the woman with the issue of blood was healed. Remember the Lord and when the Holy Spirit came down and we were filled in Acts chapter 2. Remember the healing in Acts chapter 3 of the man at the gate called Beautiful. Remember when we went to prison in in Acts chapter 4 and we got released by the angel. Remember in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lied about the Holy Spirit and they died, lied to the Holy Spirit and died in church. Remember Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen being stoned and preaching a sermon remember Acts chapter 8 when they went down to Samaria and saw a revival remember in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10 where Cornelius his family were baptized in the Holy Spirit honey remember the Lord don't give up on this spirit I see I know honey this ain't what we want but this is a hill worth dying on They took Peter after his wife died, they took him to the cross, and history says that he would not be crucified the same way as his Lord Jesus, that he walked three and a half years with, he wouldn't do it. and He requested that the cross be turned upside down, and that Peter would die upside down, head downward, as Christ died head up. Peter found himself unworthy to die the same as his Savior why would you do this, Peter? Why would you end your story like this? You could have started a big church and had a TV ministry. You could have had all kinds of impressive people liking you if you just didn't do all that tongue stuff. If If you didn't do all that Holy Spirit stuff and miracle stuff, you could have been the top five biggest preachers in America. But to him... It was a hill worth dying on. I hope as the church progresses in the final hours of humanity that there are still some preachers and some churches that will die on that hill. To Peter, God's spirit was a hill worth dying on. William Seymour, one of my favorite people I've ever read on, was born in Centerville, Louisiana on May 2nd, 1870. This partially blind black man from the deep south felt a call to preach the word and to reach people. He went to Bible school and and attended, but the Jim Crow laws wouldn't allow him to sit inside and listen with the other white people, so he had to sit outside and listen from a window. And that he did. Hungry for the word, hungry for the spirit. He moved to California, and when he went to rent a building... At 312 Azusa Street, people laughed, people ridiculed. This building was only 40 by 60. It was a run-down, dirty lumberyard horse stable. 40 feet by 60 feet, which is, this stage is probably bigger. The pulpit was composed of two large wooden boxes, Seymour would usually sit behind these deep in prayer with his head inside those boxes. In the summer months, thousands of people would come by train, crowding the streets to see a miracle and to sense the presence of God. It was later coined as the Azusa Street Revival. John G. Lake visited Azusa Street meetings and wrote of William Seymour, quote, he had the funniest vocabulary but i want to tell you that they that there were doctors lawyers professors professionals listening to the marvelous things that came from his lips and it was not what he said in words it was what he said from his spirit Amen. god give us preachers that preach from their spirit one night the fire department was called when a flame when When it was seen by witnesses that the building was on fire, they had heard explosions and saw fire coming out of the windows on top of the roof. When the fire department came, there was no fire. When the fire department came, they saw no smoke and no flames. All they found were people praising God and worshiping and singing and clapping and being filled with the Spirit and miracles happening. They didn't see a fire in the natural, but there was a fire in the Spirit. Can I get an amen? The fire department tried to shut them down. Child welfare agency tried to shut them down because it was so many kids at the the thing, they just felt like it was not safe. The health department tried to shut them down. The CCD tried to shut them down. Whatever, the CD, I don't know, whoever. Them. Tried to shut them down because of cramped quarters and the danger to public health. But to William Seymour, God's spirit was a hill worth dying on. There's another hill. Not only the word, not only the spirit. In Our final moments together, I wanna give you one more hill worth, worth dying on, and it is his church. We must be committed to the idea of the church because the idea of the church wasn't my idea. And it wasn't your idea. It was God's idea. And if you were to interview our staff and team today, if you were to say, hey, let me talk to all the pastors, let me talk to all the team members, let me talk to all the staff, and Pastor Ethan and Lena, let me ask them, I would tell you right now, none of us feel like this is our church. We attend this church. We're a part of this great church. But this is not our church. This is God's church. This is God's great church. Church, And I'll say this, we need the church, and the church needs us. Why does a church need to prosper in a community? Because as a church prospers, the kingdom of God advances in that region. So the kingdom of God, Jesus said to pray like this, let your kingdom come and your will be done. So as the church expands and people are getting saved and, re- and converted and regenerated and renewed and encouraged, their lives begin to change. Their attitudes begin to adjust. Their worldview shifts. Their voting may change. The way they think is that how they raise their family. That Maybe their dad and their dad's dad and their dad's dad, dad all ran away from the kids, but you decide to stay because you're saved and you're sanctified and washed in the blood and you're learning how to be a father. You're you're changing generational habits. What's happening, the kingdom of God is becoming more prevalent in Columbus, Mississippi. Am I helping? So we need a church where people are getting saved and baptized and getting their kids in kids' ministry and student ministry and coming to church and having revival nights and worshiping and praising God. It's not just something to a social gathering of checking things off the list. This is literally the kingdom of God on the earth. You are seeing an expression of God's will on the earth. Is great church. <clears throat> Am I helping you? As we become more resolved in the church, we're creating space for God's agenda to advance in our cities where drug use can go down. I heard a story one time, I didn't share this last service so I can't use it ever again, which is a bummer, but I heard this story one time of a revival that broke out in this city and it was so so powerful and it was in a coal mining town where they had these Men working in the coal mines and, and at night people would come to these revivals. Well the thing was, everybody got saved. Everybody got saved. Like everybody's getting healed and saved and everybody's going to church. It was a miracle. It was a move of God. And what they found was that the donkeys that would go into the the, the, the caves to 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 traffic out like coal or whatever, they they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't listen to the guys they always listened to. And they started wondering, why don't these donkeys listen to us anymore? And what they found out was that for years, the only way they could get the donkeys to go was to cuss them out. But everybody got saved and everybody stopped cussing. (laughs) Come on, wouldn't it be amazing that a move of God was so prevalent, that lives were so obviously changed, that it changed the city and our donkeys stopped working? Wouldn't that be amazing? You can take donkey's self-working however you want. That was a really confusing moment. There is nothing in my life I want to give to. There's nothing in this world that I want to give my life to more than the local church. There is nothing I want to give my money to more than the local church. There is nothing I want to give my giftings to more than the local church. You've heard it said that the church is God's plan A to save the world, and there is no plan B. This is God's plan for the earth. This is what he's building today, and I want to get my family in on what God's building if, God's, if God said, "I'm building this," then I'd be on that. But what we find in His word, he says, "I'm going to build the church. I want to be building the church." Mom and Dad used to take us to church all the time, like all the time. Anybody got like, all the time passed? Yeah, it's terrible, it's horrible. <laughs> we had to go to church. And we didn't just go to church like Sunday morning at nine or 11, I'll see you next Sunday pastor, nice handshake and a cup of coffee. That ain't the kind of church I grew up in. We went to church, we got there at nine because we had to clean the church because we were the pastor's kids. Church started, Sunday school started at 10. We'd all be in our classes. Service started at 11, I had to run to the piano church lasted for like three hours i don't even know how we ran kids ministry then it's like it didn't run it was just kids were with us three hours preachers saying a whole lot of another for a whole long time <laughs> get home grab lunch because you know church folk love to eat you ain't saved if you don't like to eat We'd eat after church. Go back to church at five o'clock for choir rehearsal. You guys know anything? And none of you know nothing about this. Then at six o'clock when the saints come dragging in, we did it all again. And I was raised Pentecostal, so Sunday nights were always better than Sunday mornings. And they'd be rocking and reeling all night, and I'd be like, bro, let's go! <laughs> and then we'd get done with church, and every Sunday night we'd have food at the church with the church folk. And my dad, <laughs> my dad loved to sell pies for the building fund. That's the only way he knew how to do it. We did spaghetti dinners. We did soul food dinners. We did everything to raise money to build a church. But we built a church. Wednesday night, we were back at the church. Thursday night, my dad pastored a church in West Virginia. We'd go to West Virginia. Dad would preach, I would play. We'd get up in the morning, got worked at a factory. I had to go to work the next day. It wasn't always cool church didn't look how we're used to it but it was still God's church and I wouldn't take any of that back maybe some of those Sunday nights (laughs) I'm so glad I got to do it I want my kids to do it too because that's what God's building on the earth they don't got to be in ministry don't misunderstand me but they do need to contribute to the cause you may never preach, but you can serve. You can hold a door. You may not be able to sing. And don't 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 pray for a miracle and try out. Just if you can't, you know. And if you don't know, somebody knows. <laughs> don't try for the worship team if you can't sing. But if you can sing, kids' ministry, student ministry. I mean. We, we we get to do this. What an honor of a lifetime to get to build the church. And during revival nights, I stood over there, and I looked through the crowd and through the lobby, and I watched. Hands were raised. Hearts were touched. Tears ran down. People repenting of sin. People making decisions of life change. It was just... For me, as a church boy, heaven on earth. It's almost like the dove came in, made a few laps. I didn't want to leave the services. I watched people laughing and hugging in the lobby, and we tried to close service, remember Pastor Tyson, and they I was in the back with some of the pastors, and I could hear the music still going, and Pastor Tyson's still screaming, I'm like, you know, he doesn't get overtime. This is salary. I don't know what he's thinking. <laughs> they told me that people are still worshiping and praising God. It's amazing. It's the church. It's the church. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build this church. He took personal responsibility for this. I've often wondered, how does God build the church? Buildings, is it through denominations? Those things are a result of the way God builds his church. Here's how God builds his church: one life at a time. One soul at one marriage, one family at a time. God looked in time and saw you and saw me and he looked and he saw the depravity and he saw the sin and he saw the shame and he saw the secrets and he saw your lostness and he said I love them too much they're a hill worth dying on and just like the boys scaled the cliffs of Normandy. And just like those boys trying to offset the onslaught of the Axis powers, just like they gave everything, Jesus climbed a hill with a cross on his back. Jesus, as he crested the top, they pushed him to his knees threw him on his back on an old rugged mean beam, put nails in his hands, pressed a crown of thorns upon his head, put nails in his feet. As his body barely could breathe, they pierced him in his side. They believed to even touch his heart. The breathing became more shallow. The eyes could not stay open. The blood was running. The beard was pulled. The tears were many. Why? This is a hill worth dying on. Because I know, I know Pastor Tommy's gonna need this. Is it Dustin, right? Dustin's gonna us needs to be saved. So this is a hill worth dying on. He refused to walk away. When he didn't have to go to the cross, to Jesus, the church was a hill worth dying on. with eyes closed all over the room and no one looking around. Jesus gave his life because you were something of precious value that he felt you and I were worth the beating and the shame and the, the spitting on and the ridicule. The Bible says he joyfully endured the cross not because of the pain, but because of its purpose. If you're in the room and you don't know Jesus, you've drifted away from God, I need to ask you a question. Are you living for what he died for? If you're in the room and say, with no one looking around, I want you to repeat this prayer after me, all of us together. Dear Father, forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean with your blood. Make me a new person. I can't live my life without you. Thank you for dying on that hill for me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, I want you to know that you just made the greatest decision you could ever make with your entire life living for something he died for. Can you let every individual know that said yes to Jesus today that we are behind you, we love you, we support you? Will you stand with us all over the room? I want to close you. I want to close you. I have so much in my heart, but I'm going to just close you right here. If you're one of the people that said yes to Jesus, please fill out one of the cards and the seat back in front of you and drop it off at guest services. We wanna know that you said yes to Jesus today. You made the greatest decision of your entire life. We're so glad for you. I can't close service without saying this, that there are some hills worth dying on and there are some hills not worth dying on. There are some that argue over the collar of carpet in a church. That's not a hill worth dying on for us. There are some that may argue styles of worship, styles of clothes. May argue that big and small churches are more authentic or whatever. Those are not hills worth dying on. But if we can get our mind focused on his word, his spirit, and his church, those are hills we're gonna fight on. We'll die for those hills. So can I pray with you today? If you wanna raise your hands to heaven, maybe you wanna put your arms out. Father, I thank you so much. As the team gets ready to sing this song, I just pray the blessing of God. I pray the blessing of God upon them, their lives, their marriages, their children, their homes, and we pray in the mighty name of Jesus that there are these hills we're gonna fight for. Father, instill in us the contending spirit that when we get in the ring, we're not giving up on the church, we're not giving up on his word, and we're not giving up on his spirit. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Come on, if you believe it, say amen, somebody. Come on, let's worship the king.